Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to tell a story. I'm super excited to introduce um, our special guest for the night, my great friend, someone that I went to Grand Valley, my alma mater, with um, Torrance. If you want to take it away and introduce yourself and say who you are and why you're here. Yes, Terrell, thank you very much for having me. You too, Caleb. Um, my name is Torrance Witherspoon, like Terrell mentioned, uh, and we're really good friends from undergrad. We both went to Grand Valley State University. Go Lakers. Um, and I, I currently, I'm from Niles, Michigan, um, and I work at Notre Dame, and I'm applying to law school right now, so it's just kind of been a really interesting year with 2020 and the pandemic, but um, I'm also a writer and an actor myself, and so the piece that I prepared today is, is largely, um, I think, speaks to both of those interests, but also I'm a huge pop culture and um, politics nerd myself, and so I think that you'll see that that's kind of fused together here. Aren't you undersold yourself? You're definitely an influencer to some extent. I see all your posts on Instagram and just the work that you're doing. So I'm super excited that you're able to be here. Um, one of our favorite things to do with the pod is a what if, and I would like to invite you to participate. Caleb never knows these. I never plan ahead, but we're going to give it a shot. Okay. So the what if today is what if you found a lamp? and there was a genie inside what would be your three wishes what a question um and i can't can't say that i've never thought of this question because i feel like i i certainly have um i think that i always think about like my way to trick is like you know on my third wish i'd ask for three more wishes uh and just be like have a genie forever but that's that's not my real real answer uh i don't know also can't wish for that yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not good at these kind of like theoretical questions because like, I'm so like, I'm so practical um, in a lot of senses because like, I want to say, I know it's, I know it's really, that's not what you want to hear, but like, when, when I hear that question, like ask him, like, well, honestly, like, how can I ask for wishes that are going to like, help me reach my goals, right? Like not something like simple or, or something shallow, but like, what are three things or resources or, or things that would help me advance to the next part of my life so that I can just like continue to try to do the good things I already want to do. Um, so I know that's not the answer that you're looking for, but like, you know, the means to, you know, to pay for my law school education, I would probably ask for, you know, a good health, obviously in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, I don't know, good vibes and love. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. I love that. Wait, Terrell, who says that you can't wish for more wishes? The genie always says that you can't wish for more wishes. That is always one of the core rules to genie wishes. I will probably, I think I have like one or two of them right now. And then you might have to interrupt me. Okay. The first one is to all the viewers out there. One of the reasons why we missed a week on our podcast was because one, my Wi-Fi was not working. And two, I was also quarantined uh, with COVID, unfortunately. So while it was not serious, I uh, think one of my wishes would be to uh, get rid of any of those long-term effects for not just me, but everyone else who has had COVID and will have COVID. Oh, that's a really good one. I know. I just, the other two are, I don't know, you know. Um, (laughs) The second one might be, let my Wi-Fi never crash because I was so mad last week. And then the third one is probably something like, I don't need lots of cash, but enough that I'll always be financially secure. I respect that. The practicality. See, you should bring, you should bring that to the table when it comes to a genie. Thank you, Tony. You should also wish for like better Wi-Fi, not just that your Wi-Fi never crashes, but that it's just better in general. You're right. That's just me. You're right. I'm going to run my wishes by both of you every, like every time I meet a genie. As choice. So one loophole to the question that Caleb brought up that I saw on social media recently was someone wrote out a list of wishes and then asked that that list, that list was fulfilled. So if you wanted more wishes, that was kind of the, the sneak. Um, but for me, so mine are very similar to what Torrance mentioned, but I would this is going to sound super morbid, but I wish to experience death, but be able to come back just to like know what 
that experience is, like what's on the other side. I'm very much a person who always wants to know things. And that's the one thing that you never know until it happens. And then you can't come back and report. Granted, I might not be able to tell people what happens, but um, that's one. Wait, Terrell, <laughs> I, got it. I have to interrupt you. Go for it. Two questions. First, what has inspired you to want to die and then come back? <laughs> Was not expecting that question. Um, being completely transparent, I have attempted suicide before. And that, that experience in and of itself led to less of a fear of death it's in general um but also like i mentioned there there's a there's a just question of what is on the other side a lot of people have near-death experiences or um there have been wars fought over what people think happens once you die i just have a genuine curiosity of what would happen okay i have my other follow-up and that is I'm like trying to think how to word this. So basically like this applies to a lot of things. My mm -hmm. follow up is, and it's basically like, it's, this is like one of those questions of if you could know anything in the world, even if it was about something that happens in the future, would you want to know it or would you not? And so my question to you is would knowing what death feels like, kind of ruin the point of life for you? Ooh, that's a good one. That's, that's, that's what I like to hear. I would argue no, because my, my philosophy is I'm going to live each day as if it was my last. So whatever happens at the end is going to happen. I know that's a, a certain, um, but that's not going to change. Like knowing that the other side ends up being this and, um, whatever it might be. I don't think at least present day Terrell who doesn't know what the other side looks like um, would not change any actions or how they function. I would just kind of continue on with where I'm at. Interesting. Do you want my other two? Cause they're like not as bad, I guess. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if that was a bad wish. I was curious. It's very deep. And it, it was one that like popped to me in the shower. I was like, yeah, I would actually want to know what that experience is like. Um, the second you, wish. Was that when you were thinking of this? What if? Yes, actually. <laughs> I am I like not curious about death, the experience of it. Like I'm deeply, like I'm just not curious. Like let's just not. Interesting. I'm curious, but I don't think I'd want to experience it before. Right. Yeah. It's the thing like I'm very like okay with like experiencing it when it happens. Yeah. Like and putting that off as long as possible. Oh, Bottom of the list of things to do. <laughs> Super deep stuff in our what if session today. It always randomly happens. The second one is I want to be able to master anything that I like chose for like the span of my life. So if I'm, I have a guitar that I bought while I was a consultant that I told myself I was going to teach myself how to play it. Trying to learn guitar while traveling and flying is not easy. And I didn't want to spend the money to take that guitar other places. So that is one thing that always kind of sits there and reminds me that there are a lot of things to master and kind of to the, the previous um, wish I just like to know things. So if I could, that would be awesome. That's a good one. And I actually didn't come up with a third one, ironically. Starting to sound like me. It tends to happen, the whole like co-host chemistry nonsense. <laughs> co-host chemistry. Um, I don't know. Uh, the third one would probably be something around like it would probably be like a question. Like it wouldn't even be a wish. It would just be, I want to know the answer to this. Like, do I have three kids in the future or have I already met my soulmate or will I find love? Like one of those random questions, just like, I wish that I knew the answer to that problem solved. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. See, I just don't think I'd want to know that stuff ahead of time. That's fascinating to me. 
Yeah, it is fascinating to like to the idea that you do want to know like those big answers. Like I think I want to like on a whim when I think about it, but like in reality, like I wouldn't know what to do with that information. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah. The idea of having that information feels really scary. Yeah. The death one definitely. I'm like, uh, how do I tell people that X happened or Y? And then does like I think of a uh, um, Twilight Zone episode does knowing the answer then change the whole prospect of your life so because uh, me being who I am I'm like I kind of want to share it with some people does that lead to me becoming a martyr and people killing me for it and I die sooner than I was supposed to all of these other things so right that's like that's like okay like I have that question but does but does life change for you because you now know it so you're thinking about it differently or does it change act like actual events change because you know see i don't know i would think that actual events might change because i know because the original course of life is you don't know and it happens and whatever but because i know and i tell people or i do one thing differently thinking like oh this could result in x yes now the whole fabric of time has changed who knows? And that's why I want to know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> you want to know, and all of us are like, in theory, we want to know, but do we actually? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Okay, maybe it's just me. <laughs> this is the second time we've had a what if where I'm like, oh, it's, I'm, I'm alone in this camp. Okay, this is fine. <laughs> well, that's what makes these fun, is that yeah, you don't really know how we're going to respond. So now for the main act, Torrance, tell us about uh, what we're going to be listening to today. Yeah. Um, so like I mentioned before, I, I um, am an actor and I'm a writer and a lot of my writing um, often comes out in script form. Um, and when you guys approached me about the idea of sharing a piece of my writing on the show, I, uh, I got to thinking about like what kind of message I wanted to send and and like what's important to me, what's top of mind and what's also um, like present in, in people's minds with current events. And so the piece that I wrote, it's called The Candidate, I Bought the Dream. Um, and we're gonna be doing a bit of a dramatic reading. So I know this is a little different than the previous ones that you guys have done on here. Um, and I am calling on Terrell and Caleb for their help. Uh, um, and so I will be reading the main, the main character of Mayor, Mayor Fitzgerald. Um, Mayor as in that's his name, not his title. Uh, and Caleb will be playing the role of a reporter um, and Terrell will be reading the narration of the, of the scene. And since it is um, written in script form as if it was a short film, um, the narration that Terrell will be explaining are the actions behind the scene. And I, I think that once we get to reading it, people will really understand the narrative that's being um, drawn for them. Awesome. So are we ready to go? I think so. Yeah, I'm ready to, I'm ready to rock and roll. All right. Well, with narration, I'll start. Scene one, Mayor Fitzgerald, a millennial, gay, biracial activist and lawyer, just recently announced his candidacy to unseat a two decade incumbent Senator from his home state and his own party. Since announcing, he has been the subject of progressive praise and conservative criticism. He is self-assured in his decision to pursue this seat, but neither unaware of the challenges nor unrealistic about the prospect of his run. He walks out the door of his campaign headquarters, flanked by his chief of staff and communications director. He steps up to the podium, optimistic and comfortable in his skin. Hello everyone, thank you for being here today. Uh, I'm excited about this campaign and looking forward to answering just a few questions. Let's start with you here in the front. Mr. Fitzgerald. I am sure you and your campaign are well aware of the many comments and criticisms from people in both parties over the last few days about your candidacy. What do you say to the people that believe you aren't waiting your turn and are unnecessarily challenging an incumbent of your own party? And additionally, that someone of your age and identity would struggle to win the general election in your state if you are successful in receiving the party's nomination. What was your name? Michael Van from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Nice to meet you, Michael. I'm sure I'll be seeing a lot of you on the trail. Um, and thank you for the question. Mayor looks down at the podium, deep in thought about how to answer the question, 
not because he doesn't have one, but because how he answers this question will set the entire tone of his campaign. It is his introduction to national politics as the candidate and not the staffer. In short, because I bought the dream when they sold it to me. Because when I was asked to stand each day in elementary school and pledge my allegiance to the flag of our nation, iterating the words liberty and justice for all, I believed it. Because when I listened to the Senator speak at my undergraduate commencement ceremony, and he said that any one of us in that crowd could and should be in his space one day serving our great state, because he believed public service was important to the health of a democratic society, I too believed him when he said it. When the American dream has been spoken about at podium after podium by different leaders and activists that I've admired, I have also believed them. The question I have is, was I not supposed to? Mayor pauses, staring at the reporter in silence before relaxing further. He stares into the camera for a moment before his shoulders come down. He becomes more comfortable and continues. As a young boy growing up in Milwaukee with five siblings, I was raised by two parents who didn't get a college degree and despite working their very hardest in blue collar jobs, didn't always have what they needed to make ends meet. I can be honest and admit that there was more than enough hardship that I didn't understand as a kid that could have made me bitter about the prospect of the American dream. When I was in middle school and began to realize that I was gay, once again, I was given reason to believe that maybe the American dream wasn't meant for people like me, that maybe I wouldn't get to grow up and fall in love, raise a family and pursue the dreams I was starting to create for myself. But I am that same young boy who read for my social studies books in my free time, falling in love with history and the creation of our democracy, finding myself fascinated by the branches of government and the idea of checks and balances on power. It was incredible, incredible public school teachers that I had growing up that first saw potential in me and in unexplainable ways, first gave me the confidence to believe that I had what it took to be absolutely anything I wanted to be. And thank God I believed them. You see, I have the audacity to believe that my candidacy is not just aspirational, but that I bring the knowledge, skills, empathy, and compassion necessary to lead in this moment, to tackle our generation's struggles. Like my hero, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I believe we will get to that mountaintop. Like my other hero, Robert F. Kennedy, once said that each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring those ripples build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. Those two men and so many others over the last century have been those ripples of hope. And I would like to believe my candidacy is one single wave in this generation's current. I not only believe that I can be part of what sweeps away the mightiest forces of oppression and resistance in our society, I endeavor to meet that challenge. And what do you say to the notion, you aren't waiting your turn? As for the idea that I may not be waiting my turn, with all due respect to the Senator, as well as other members of the party who may share this opinion, but I have been engaged in the electoral and political process as an activist on party issues, both as a student and as a practicing lawyer. I've worked on the campaigns of current senators as well as members of the House, but above all else, I've remained engaged as a grassroots organizer for this party throughout my entire adult life, helping organize to flip districts at the federal and state level. Mayor pauses, shaking his head in disbelief. In all of that time, I have never once been shown to this line I'm supposed to be waiting in. I have never once been asked to sign up for my turn. Despite having the knowledge, experience, and self-awareness to mount a credible candidacy for many of the seats that have come up in my time working for this party, I was never asked to run. What I can say is this. I run for this seat with great admiration for the institution of the Senate, with great respect for the career of the incumbent and clear-eyed about the challenges of my run. I am not some young kid with some misunderstanding of the gravity of the decision I have made. In fact, these things have weighed enormously in my decision to pursue this office. But when I look around and see my family, my neighbors, and my community struggling because of the growing inequality, the social injustice, and the deterioration of the middle class, and by extension, the deterioration of an honest American dream, I cannot and will not just sit by doing and saying nothing when I believe I have something to offer. Mayor remains attentive to Michael, expecting an additional follow-up to the question. You mentioned the American dream in a way that suggests it has been a lie sold to Americans. Can you explain further what you mean by that? Let me be clear when I say that I do not believe the American dream is dead. 
I do not believe that the liberty and freedom that has long made America the land of opportunity is dead. What I do believe is that over the past four decades, we have debilitated the infrastructure and resources that have long made the American dream possible for so many. Programs and policies that have attempted to combat the inequity in our society. What I do believe is that in addition to the systemic nature of inequality due to racism, sexism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, and other forms of oppression, that our leaders have failed to regulate the growing socioeconomic inequality that has stifled the American dream. That while capitalism and bailing out corporations that have done nothing to invest in their workers and their communities is seen as necessary for the health of our economy, but fair and equitable access to healthcare and education for our citizens is framed and seen as socialism. We are okay with sending the hard-earned dollars of taxpayers to corporations that don't pay a living wage for workers who devote 40 plus hours a week to their bottom line, giving those same billion dollar corporations tax breaks while we have college educated Americans who are drowning in student loan debt and can't get a job that pays high enough wage to pay their bills and build a life, build a family. Our leaders in our country have invested in corporate greed, but refuse to invest in the people who are they are elected to serve. People aren't asking for a lot. People wanna be who they are, love who they love and have the opportunity to build a dignified life and contribute their best to their community and country. People just wanna be able to make a fair wage, pay their bills, send their kids to a good school and maybe take a family vacation once a year. So many people have done what has been asked of them to no avail. People have obeyed the law, done well in school, went on to get a degree or a trade, and still they cannot find the opportunity to achieve financial stability. That is what I mean when I ask, was I not supposed to believe it when they sold me the American dream? When it takes a public school teacher an additional part-time job to raise their family, we have done something wrong. We have made the wrong decisions somewhere. Michael, the reporter, grabs Mayor's attention, speaking up quickly. A final follow-up. We live in an incredibly divisive times along party lines. How do you intend to make your case to voters about how you will work across party lines with people who do not agree with you? Thank you for that follow-up because I do wanna address this. I'm a proud progressive Democrat, but I am not running to represent some ideology. I am running to represent the people of Wisconsin, a state and people I care deeply about. Here's the thing. I'm a progressive Democrat, not because I think that as an ideology, it is somehow superior to another, but because the solutions I've identified that are most comprehensive and equitable are in line with the progressive platform. If I find that the conservatives have the better plan to a policy, the, if I find that conservatives have the better plan or policy to tackle the problems that my constituents face, then I'll be the first in line to co-sponsor the bill. There are going to be people who do not vote for me simply because of who I am and who I love. There are going to be people, and it disappoints me that this is a fact, that will not vote for me simply because of the color of my skin. We've got a lot of work to do here in Wisconsin on a lot of fronts, but I am prepared to fight for a government and a society that reflects the best of us. I'm committed to working toward policies that contribute to an equitable society where everyone has access to education, to opportunity, to a dignified income. What I am pursuing with my candidacy is honesty. As a legislator, I will ask myself with every bill, is this getting us closer to the dream? Does this help my neighbor, the firefighter, the teacher, the single dad, the grandma raising her grandchild, the veteran home from service, the gay couple trying to adopt their first child? Does this make the American dream more accessible? Are we moving closer to a place where everyone is getting a fair shot? That is how I will choose to lead. With an idealistic optimism for what is possible, but with a very serious understanding of the reality of the system and world that we live in. The promise of this country and its constitution is nothing if not aspirational. That is how I will choose to legislate. Thank you for your questions and your time. I apologize that I did not get to, get to more of you today, but I think we have covered what we needed. We'll do this again soon. Mayor steps back, smiling and nodding to the reporter in satisfaction. He then turns to go back inside. The door closes softly behind him. In scene. I thought that was great. Torrance. I loved it. This makes me feel like you could run for office. This is what you wrote. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, this is, I was talking to my mom a bit about this as I was writing and um, I, I was saying that, I mean, honestly, this is probably what I would say if I was running for office, I think. I mean, this is probably largely similar to something that would come out of my mouth just because like, I think that this is 
something that a lot of people in our generation feel like mm-hmm. there's a disconnect between the things that we say and the things that we do, or at least from a governing and legislative standpoint. And there's a difference between um, what we what we express our values to be in the in the laws and the legislation and the bills um, that we pass. So that's the, the, the hypocrisy is something that is consistently on my mind and something that I think about all the time and is what motivates me a lot actually to want to run for office. So, so what you're saying is you would possibly run for office someday. Uh, I will run for office. I like it. Any yeah. particular office? Um, yeah, I mean, I hope to serve in, in Congress at some point. I, I don't think that I would ever um, run for something like higher than Senate, but I'd like to be a congressman and a senator one day, I think, or one or the other. Well, that's really cool. This was great. I really loved, I enjoyed every minute of it and being a part of it. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for reading with me. Yeah. Oh, I really appreciate just the opportunity to be a part of um, your piece and your work and be able to tell that story. Can I, can I ask, I, this is weird for me to ask you guys questions, but can I ask like, uh, like what thoughts were provoked for you? It's not weird at all. Um, interestingly, it, earlier this week, I had a revelation, if you will, like where, like what are conspiracy theories rooted in and uh, like, why, how do they happen? How do we get here? And uh, I landed on it's, the human ability to 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 try to qualify or try to answer things that they can't answer so when i think about the birtherism conspiracy for barack obama it was an opportunity for an electorate to explain how a black man actually became president because the system wasn't built to allow a black man to become president and um listening to your piece and hearing those words of the aspiration, the, the, the challenge to the American dream, the understanding that it's not working for everyone. I, I found myself leaning back into that thought a little bit of um, not calling the American dream a conspiracy theory, but like, where did we go wrong? Where did we lose that gap of actual aspiration, actual hope to get there? And is it becoming this thing of I'll suffer because eventually I'll get there? I, well, I just wanted to say that that's I get that that was where it started, right? Is that I, I am someone who, um, like, I I so on a more personal nature that a lot of this is based on pieces of information from my own life, and um, I actually have eight siblings, and not not just five of us, but eight siblings, and um, I am the f- first and the only to have gone um, to college and to get to get a degree, and so. Um, I like led this very like meticulous like path, like doing all of the clubs, playing the sports, doing well in school, doing exactly what like this checklist of things was was set out for me to do. That was like, this is, this is how you get to like the life of like financial stability. Like this is where you get to like where you want, like, you know, and those were all the things that I was thinking about as a, as an elementary student, as a middle schooler, as a high schooler, all the way through college. And then I graduated, you know, with a degree as someone who I think like, not just like has intelligence, but I think I have something to offer as like, you know, an employee as well, you know, as a person that like really struggled to find jobs that paid well enough to, you know, live a decent lifestyle, but also like pay your student loans and those kinds of things. I'm like, I I reached this spot, this space where I just felt so like kind of lied to or like let down. I was like to point me where I went wrong, you know, like where did, what, what did I not do on this map to the American dream that now I'm here and the American dream is not existent. Right. So like, I just felt really cheated out of something that like, I was told was like the surefire way to achieve it. And a lot of those feelings are what motivated me to write this piece. I can definitely relate to that. So I think what I was thinking about, um, I really like to think about the idea of the American dream in this, this kind of like Q and a like um, press conference with a candidate. Like this is a candidate that for the most part, I, I would agree with. And I really like what was being said it's one of those things that today, which I think it's pretty widespread now, is like, okay, so where's the action to back it up? Because when people look at Washington, right, it's just this gridlock. Nobody's actually doing anything except fighting with each other. But I think, I, I don't know if I have, if I want to say exactly when I'm thinking about the American dream instead, I think I want to 
kind of answer your question with a question back to you. Mm -hmm. The question is, uh, what, what do you believe is the current state of the American dream? I think that we're, we're at risk of losing it. Um, and that, this is obviously a podcast, but quite, I think we're losing the American dream. Um, and what I mean by that is that kind of what I was already explaining prior to that is the roadmap that we were selling to get to the American dream no longer arrives at the American dream. In the 70s and the 80s, and I was looking at something like Uberfax the other day that like you could like, like sometime in the mid seventies, like the math worked out that like the average set, the average cost of tuition for a university was the equivalent of if you worked 40 hours a week at minimum wage in most states all summer, you could pay for your tuition for a semester, which like isn't even close to anything that could happen today. It's like, just like the inflation and the cost of schooling, the stagnation of wages um, when you get out of school, the ability to, to to make a good income and a dignified life without going to school, without a trade, you know, just working in a factory or working in our stores. Why, why inflation has had such a high increase over the last several decades, but wages have been so stagnated that people can't achieve what has previously been sold to them. We have people who are working above minimum wage jobs, 40 hours a week, who still can't pay for their rent and all their bills and put food on the table for, for their family. I mean, it's just that something is wrong in our economics and the way that we've pursued certain things that I think have made it much more difficult while also debilitating, like I mentioned in the piece, the infrastructure and resources that were built into our system to help with some of that socioeconomic inequality. Um, I just think that some, we have got, like, like I mentioned in there, we have gone wrong somewhere. And there's many places we could pinpoint and say, this is where we went wrong here. But I think as a totality, like in totality, we have to reflect on is our system still working for people? Is our government still set up in a way and, and I don't know how I wanna say this, is the government still set up in a way that is conducive to producing the, the free civil society of the American dream that we have promoted? So I have a, a thought project slash challenge to pose. Is the issue in and of itself the American dream or is it, the the human condition is it the american dream had the opportunity to work and do what it wanted but as you mentioned there there are people in our generation there are people in, in generations just above us who aren't finding that type of social mobility because the human condition has been able to last longer so you have boomers who are able to stay in their jobs far longer than they anticipated far longer than the american dream anticipated and that's holding it back? Or is it truly the dream that was once created in what the 1700s all the way up till now um, is not making the mark? I wanna be sure, I guess I wanna say something because I wanna be sure to explain um, one of like the messages I'm, I'm intending to send, to send with the pieces. Um, when it's talking about the American dream, I think that it's kind of talking about not just specifically the idea of like how, like this, the, the social mobility, like you mentioned, to achieve the American dream, middle income, you know, two and a half kids, nuclear family, et cetera, whatever, you know, whatever that version of that is for you on an individual level. And more so talking about do the, do the opportunities still exist? Meaning, have we invested in a good, robust education? A public education system for people? Have we, have we invested in a robust um, social safety net so that we don't have such staggering socioeconomic inequality in our country? Um, do we have, like, is our system set up in a way that is conducive for people to chase the opportunities? So whether that be access to trade, whether that be reforming our secondary um, public education in a way that allows for more career um, training, if that's not, if they're not interested in furthering their education, um, is college even remotely affordable for the average family without being indebted for decades afterwards? And is that even, is that even, is that model even good for our um, economics as a whole for a country when we have such a large part of our population who is drugged down by thousands of dollars in debt? I just think that it's looking at the picture as a whole. Are we, are we, are we trying to face head on, um, the, the, the racial injustice in our, in our country, the systemic racism and systemic oppression that has long made specific um, populations of people in this country um, have put them out from the opportunities that, that give you um, a path to the American dream. So what, I, what I'm kind of saying with the American dream and what it's standing for as a whole is the issues that we decide to not talk about when we're selling it at a pulpit um, as, 
as a candidate, as a legislator, as a leader, that you're going up there and saying these things, but does it connect to the actual legislation and policy and leadership that you um, promote? The American dream fascinates me. And I don't, I don't know if I have a good, I don't think it's a hundred percent gone, but I think I'm kind of in your boat more that we are in, we're are, we are at risk of losing it. I mean, why do people come here? Right. Like what makes this place? Cause like we all live in this place and I don't know, some of us might think it's great, but some of us kind of look around, especially over the past year and go, Oh, I don't know. I don't know about this place, but, but I mean, like there's still people that are like trying to get here from wherever they are, for whatever reason, what makes this place special to them? Why do they believe that this is the place they want to be despite all the internal stuff that happens in our country that even if it is all messed up, I don't know if that's a question you can answer. That's just something that's always on my mind is why do people want to come here? Well, I think that that's like the notion of that, the idea of people like emigrating to America and the idea of America, right? And the American dream that you're able to achieve is one of the things like, is like um, a part of the shame that I think I felt a lot over the past four years. Um, I, we were never perfect, right? And, and that's, and I'm clear eyed about, about that. And that's obviously just a fact. We aren't perfect. We never were. Um, but like I mentioned in the piece, our constitution in our country is nothing if not aspirational. Our constitution is quite literally has been a roadmap to progress. And obviously at times that has not been consistently the case, but it has, it's all about what is possible. Our, our um, America is about what's possible. And so I think when I think about those things, the American dream dying, as I mentioned, my heart starts to break because despite all the things that are wrong with, the, with our country and a lot, despite a lot of the systemic issues in our country that disadvantage certain people, I take like great pride in being, being an American. I take great pride in what we have done in our history good while knowing that there's so much bad that, that accompanies that. But as far as at the end of the day, what's the, what's the bill, right? Like, have we, have we tried to expand freedom across the world more than we've, you know, maybe done some bad things? I think that we are still, you know, in the black. I do believe that we have tried to spread democracy and freedom across the world. And I think that our history speaks for itself that despite all of our shortcomings in mind, we have a lot of them domestically, that we have stood for something good and just in the end, regarded, regardless if that's a gray area when you get down into the nitty gritty. So is that everything you just said, I'm like already a full believer that you're gonna run on the idea of the American dream possibly? I probably would, yeah. And that it's still alive, but how can we not only bring it back to what that idea is, but live up to those too, those ideals, those expectations even? Yeah, well, and it's like, one of the things I think when I was like going through, like when I said, if I was, the character says that, you know, if he, the way that he would lead and the way that he would look at every bill is, is it, is it helping the firefighter? Is it helping the grandmother who's raising her grandchild, the single father, you know, the gay couple trying to adopt their first child? It's, it's like, I, I kind of get frustrated and, and I'm sure that there are a ton of factors that affect the way that, you know, even, even these first term legislators that get elected to Congress, um, they go in bright eyed and good intent good intentions that like what happens behind those doors that stops you or maybe do you never go in with that honest intention of going in and saying does this bill as i'm reading it who is the person in my community who is the letter the email that i've gotten the phone call we've received at the office that this directly impacts and does something good for right like when does when is that lost because for me that would have to be the beacon like that would have to be the guiding thing and so like i just have un I just want to know, like, why can't we have a government in a system that is conducive to all avenues of success, that, that the single father has the right resources he needs to get on his feet and the right access to whatever he may need to work a full-time job while also raising a child on his own? Like, why don't those things exist? And why do our, in the mainstream of our politics, and this is one of the more frustrating things, and I'm sure that you guys agree, 
why do so many of these things that I'm mentioning, the solutions do exist in this world and, and many nations that are our direct allies, nations that we feel most aligned with as far as their society matches ours, like England, like France, like Germany, that these solutions exist and these social safety nets and these programs exist in those countries. But to us, it's like, oh my gosh, what is that socialism? Like anything that's not like of the traditional matter of our government, it's like, oh, is that socialism? It's, you know, like, like I, I think that way about, you know, Medicare for all, it's like, if you, there are other countries, most, industrialized modern nations, many of which, like I said, are, are what we can consider our equals or similar in society, have these, these national um, healthcare um, programs that are clearly democratic societies, democratic governments, and not socialism, but that can't be breakthrough here. Like, I get really frustrated by, like, things that just seem to be, like, one plus one equals two, and we still don't do it, because it gets caught up in all of this by this partisanship and quite frankly, lies. I, I, it's, it's, I, would like to, I would like to like govern in a way that just is real. How do we write bills that are going to help people? How do we take a loss when we need to take a loss? You know, yeah. like you can't win every yeah. time. Sometimes that's okay. That's kind of a part of being in a democracy. Yeah, I'll ramble, but I, just, I have a lot of thoughts on it because like, I, I do think that things can be more altruistic than they are. Yeah, yeah. I think too, the question I was hoping to lean into um, was what is the hope that you see? And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head really well, Torrance, of you, you have these two competing issues, right? You have a party that's trying to understand how to operate in the current system. Um, and you have another party that is fighting to retain power as long as they can and making the argument that the other side is socialism, the other side is fascism. They're going to stamp on your religious rights. They're going to make government every part of your life to the point that people think that the vaccine that just came out is going to put a chip in their body. But then you also have the other party who's struggling to not only beat that narrative, but also say, while we're trying to beat that narrative, we also, uh, we don't want to sign on to some of these policies because now we feel like we're playing into it, even if it's the best strategy. So uh, to your piece, if, if you were mayor, what is that, that step movement forward to either break that divide, which I know that's not an easy answer, but to start building and reinforcing the American dream that our parents experienced, the one that we watch every time we hear about the 1950s and you see the funny cartoons of the nuclear family just living their best life. Like what, what needs to happen to get to that point again? Yeah, uh, I, I appreciate this question because I'm, I'm sure I have a lot to say about it. But um, when I think about, for one thing, so I want to address a few things. And I hope it may not answer directly the question, but I think it touches on the things that you're trying to draw out. But we live, we're in a space, right, where, and I think it's shameful, and I'll just say it, that the, the, the far right wing of the Republican Party and the very conservative part of the Republican Party, I think it is completely shameful that they knowingly, I mean, and I don't, and maybe I can't say that for sure, I have evidence of it, but I would like to believe they're smart enough that they knowingly sell lies to people they knowingly count on them not knowing the information or not going to seek it out themselves. Because a lot of it's stuff that like, I'm, we, I know that you guys agree, that it's like, that just takes one, either having paid attention in civics class or one Google search to know that that's just patently false. You know, like they, and that is really frustrating to me because this dishonesty is just not, it's not conducive to a, efficient government to an efficient political discourse it's it's just it's dishonest you know and, and, it, and, it's, and it's corrosive to our public discourse as well um and i also think that as a democratic party as a democrat that like we fail to message correctly what we mean by what we say that what we mean by the policies that we're pursuing um and i think that we are not innocent in the fact that we have an establishment issue and that's something that i try to touch on in the piece that you know like this is a this is a, a real thing that happens to people that we have young people who are more than capable, that are intelligent, that are ambitious, that are motivated, that want to do the real on the ground work, the organizing um, to bring people into the process that never get tapped to run for these offices when they are, when they are more than capable. Um, when not only are they capable, but would probably be good for the system and, the, and 
the organizing in certain communities and bringing out more voters. I just think that we have a problem that we need to identify and figure out within our own party as well. Um, but from mayor's perspective, I think that, like I was mentioning, he just wants to pursue policies that are gonna help people. And that means like you said, that nuclear idea of a family, not that the families need to be nuclear, but that tell me why I pose the question to, to our government, to our economy, to businesses, to citizens, why is it not just that even if it's just a single mother and a single father, but say, for example, a mother and a father who work 40 hours a week, doesn't matter what that is, whether they're the person at the grocery store, whether they're your doctor, have two kids live in a modest three bedroom home, can't make their money, go home, pay their bills, put clothes on their kids back, pay for food, put a little money for retirement and pay for kids school. That they can't mathematically do that. That, that. that even if it's not a minimum wage job, that those realities have kind of gone away, that the mathematic, mathematical reality of that um, financially has gone away. And I asked the question, how and why, and why is that just? Because what I just heard was a scenario of two people doing their darndest, being good people, contributing to their community and their society, and still not being able to make ends meet. It's those scenarios that I want to understand, that I want, that I think mayor would try to pursue legislation and policies that speak directly to that impact. And that goes not as simple as just, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, but understanding why does Jeff Bezos, you know, like, for example, make billions of dollars in less than a year, or his, or, you know, his company does, or him himself, in a year where we're having record evictions, record um, job losses, record number of people filing for unemployment. We're in the middle of a pandemic, people are losing their, their insurance and their health care. Um, and then while we have one of our parties trying to take away that health care in the middle of that pandemic, 20 million people on a um, government-run insurance program. Why, do, why does that make sense? Why would, why would doing things that are going to, um, they're not helping people and doing things in spite of what you know is the right thing to do, the way that we're leading, the way that we're legislating and the way that we're governing, it just seems like we have to reflect better on what we're accepting from our leaders, what we're accepting from our media and what we're accepting from the people around us because we can sit here and have these conversations like so many people had over the last four years about what's pissed them off or what's wrong with our country, but not enough people, you know, getting up and knocking doors and volunteering and registering voters and working at the polls. It's, it's, it's from the top to the bottom. We have a societal issue that doesn't have a solution, a one fixed solution, but requires, I think, as President Obama so eloquently said um, when he spoke at DNC, that we all got to get back involved. We've all got to be engaged in our citizenship if we want our society and for our government to reflect the values that we say that they should. We've been far too disengaged. And I think that that's, has, has eroded some of the greatness in our governing, some of the greatness in our society, and quite frankly, as well as in our economy. Because we've given control over. Yeah, yeah. I don't, Terrell, I don't know if you had. No, I was, I was going to agree with everything that Torrance mentioned and, and just add like, um, I had an encounter with one of my conservative friends where it was just that I, they had a realization after arguing about uh, Michigan closing down again and small businesses and how those were going to be impacted. They had a realization of it's not that the governor is making the wrong calls. It's the fact that the government isn't supporting the, the companies and the, the businesses that are being closed. Like, I get it. I understand that the pandemic is happening. I'm frustrated that I can't go to a restaurant, but I'm more frustrated that my this mom and pop shop that I've been going to for the last 20 years is going to foreclose because of a pandemic. And all of it was 100%. Um, it, it was able to not happen had the government actually stepped up and said, you know what, we are going to do small business loans for a little bit because we need to do that. And I think to your point, Torrance, it, it's that understanding that things like that happen during the Great Depression. Things like that happen when, Amer when the American dream was at its most challenged aspect. And if we continue to pretend like that's just socialism, we're going to see the end of that dream. I specifically, you know, I just want to just make the mention to draw the comparison to what I already said, which is like, 
to answer the way that he, I think he would, he would legislate is one of the biggest things is, is, and this is personal too, that when we have an abundance of polling on something, say it's the COVID relief bill, an abundance of polling on something. And there's like, given you could three, you could multiply the, you could multiply the, the margin of error by five and still you're in the majority, right? Like it's that high, it's that high of a majority. And we still can't pass something in Congress for it. That we, that we have people who are more than okay to give, you know, trillions of dollars in tax cuts to corporations, but then we have massive amounts of people in need in the middle of a pandemic and we can't pass a bill to just get them some money to put, to keep the roof over their head and pay their food and pay for food. Yeah. It's unconscionable. And the comparison I was trying to make is that why are we acting just like with healthcare? Like that that's not something that we can afford to do. And that it's not something that other modern um, industrialized nations are doing like Canada, like England that are just paying the people to stay at home, paying businesses so they can stay open. We act like this is like that we are the only people on planet earth facing this issue and that we can't possibly afford to, to help people. It's really frustrating. Yeah, I agree. I want to, I kind of want to touch back on um, another question I had while, while we were going through the, um, the script. And my question really was, I actually had two, but I'll start with this one. Um, what inspired you to write this? Like, was there a certain real life person or candidate or even race that you uh, uh, tracked closely in the political realm? Um, what, what, what was it that, that really inspired you to write this specifically? Um, I knew the message that I wanted to send was, was just, it was a personal thing, really. It was more, these are the frustrations that I identify. Like when I do think about like running for office, I'm like, these are the, these are the things I think I'd run into the criticisms, but also, um, but also I wanted to it just I, I wanted to talk about some of the really real frustrations that I have about like things that are existing. Like for example, like I don't know that my opinions are the same, not by any mean, but like we did just have a situation like this um, in Massachusetts with Kennedy, who you know who who is running to to unseat an incumbent, a popular incumbent senator uh, from a state, and and he did he didn't win, but we did have this situation occur, and we also had those same criticisms being asked. Being, being made and those same questions being asked about whether or not, you know, what, why is he doing this, you know? And, and that was a part that I don't think I explained a bit about, um, about like what I meant when I said like I bought the American dream is like, because of all these things you've shoved on my throat, the liberty and justice for all, the equality, the allegiance and the patriotism, you can be whatever you were. It's like, well, why would I not believe that I have just as like, you know, why that you're just as, um, righteous in your decision to want to run for office that you're just as entitled to run for that seat as anyone else is because that's what's been sold to us you can do and be whatever you want if you're willing to work for it um and so like i wanted to talk about some of the challenges and some of the fallacies of that messaging um to people but i was motivated to write it mostly because um i just i i really hope i believe that this is the case but i hope that what i'm saying in there is a lot of what people in our generation think about the gridlock, about the inefficiencies, about the establishment, about why things can't be more black and white, like that they have to be so gray. Uh, one quick thing, just because you brought it in, that's one election that actually, or, or one race, if you will, that actually really frustrated me this November, um, because I think it was, it was the closest opportunity not only our generation had, but also the the progressive movement had to say, there can be term limits. There can be an opportunity to say, um, Congress should age with its society. It shouldn't stay in one decade. It shouldn't stay in one space. And um, the candidate Kennedy was running against, did a really great job of pandering to and showing himself, I don't want to say pandering because he is a, a progressive candidate, but pandering to the progressive base and won that election because of that. And it, it, it left me sitting in the back of, we just spent months arguing that we need more AOCs in Congress. We need the squad to become what Congress looks like. And we finally had an opportunity to break the Senate and, and finally like help make the Senate a little bit more like the house and that in that um, perspective, not in a rules perspective. And we were quicker to jump towards the ideal that 
because this candidate will say certain things that fit the progressive minds mindset and the landscape that is a better option than someone who's youthful who might not argue the progressive way the same the, to the same magnitude but have the the ability to reflect on and say I am a part of this generation that's struggling. I know what needs to happen. Here's how I'm going to be a part of those conversations to move it rather than the 60 plus year old white male who is again at that table. Oh, beating something. It's like nearly 80 actually. I know. Uh, <laughs> beating a dead horse of I'm going to fight on the progressive issue because I know it, it'll get me the win. And it also won't get me kicked off of get kicked out of Congress versus people in our age group who are who are straddling this space of we can't be too progressive because we're unelectable, but we also can't be too moderate because our base doesn't like us anymore. And right. that part very much um, uh, thinking now about the piece that you were sharing uh, and and the response that he had to the reporter. It's that that tight wire that you have to straddle that is just overtly frustrating. That Markey race and Kennedy race was uh, one of the most interesting because it was so like swapped in some cases were like, um, because really they, they, they really were like almost like exactly in line policy wise. And it was really just like a, ch a choice between like age, um, which I was frustrated because I was like, Markey, like, why are you, why do you have to run again? Like, why? For a six year term at your age, like why? Like, I don't know. Okay, I, got, I have two quick questions for you based off that. Uh, one is, why Wisconsin in the script? Why Wisconsin? Yeah. Um, honestly, because it's the most similar to Michigan, but it's not Michigan. And I didn't want it to be too much like, like about my life specifically. <laughs> I like but it. screw Green Bay, just to throw that out there real quick. Yeah, I, I, yeah, no, I'm, I just, it was, it's very, Michigan and Wisconsin are so similar as far as like makeup and politics and geography as well. So in I noticed that, I mean, we just kind of talked about this race between Kennedy and um, Senator Markey. What's his face? Markey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, that kind of brings up this question that I've kind of had lingering in my head, and I don't know if I really have a position on it at this time. Mm -hmm. But just real quickly, and this is to both of you uh, should there be term limits for senators and representatives? I think so, yes. Um, there's a lot that's layered, but I will say in short, yes, I believe there should be term limits because one, like I think the point that Terrell made that our Congress should reflect our society and the age of our society. Um, and I think that's important, but also I do think that like when you're making decisions and, and voting on policies that are going to like reflect like the next 30 years of our life that you should have to be here when that happens, or you should at least have some, have some buy-in. Now that people who are near the end of their life don't care about what's going to happen, but they are less inclined to, you know, like I, I can guarantee that, you know, Representative Kennedy, that Joe is going to be here in 2050 when we have to breathe that air. And Senator Markey, come any, you know, amount of science will not be here in 2050, you know, barring being a hundred and something years, you know, hundred years old. So are hundred and something years old, right? So like, I just think that you should have to deal with the consequences of your decision. But more than that, I just think that you don't need to make a career out of this. It doesn't have to be a career. And I'm talking lengthy time limits, right? Like, you know, two or three terms in, in the Senate or, you know, like it's different. And that's even still like 18 years. You're gonna, 18 years, those people have been in the Senate for 50 years. Like that's insane. You know what I mean? Like 18 years, is that a short career? Like that's a long time to stay with a company or something, you know? So I just think that we, we would be more efficient. And I think that our public discourse and political discourse actually becomes more efficient when we're ch it's changing more often, when you're not talking at age 12 about the guy running for Senate. And then when you're 20 something, he's still the guy running for Senate. I will echo uh, most of what Torrance said. It's very much a layered, a layered piece from my my perspective as well. I think I think something that needs to change for that to happen is the belief, and this might cause some controversy, so I'm preparing myself for it. But it's the belief that the electorate is going to be the thing that fixes it. I think uh, we've seen enough elections now. Mitch McConnell being a great one. Um, 
uh, I forget who there was a personality who tweeted somewhere. Um, how do you have an 18% approval rating, but still win your election on a landslide? And it's, it's that component of the Senate, the House, all, I'll even go to the Supreme Court right now. All of these pieces are with the belief that the electorate will make the appropriate decision. And one of the reasons I argue for the Electoral College is the founding fathers didn't even believe that the electorate would ever make the right decision. They built so many other uh, posts and spaces to allow the smartest people possible to ensure that the democracy itself stays. And for whatever, well, I know for what reason, but <laughs> we moved away from that. <laughs> and just like Torrance mentioned, while I think politics can be something of a career, it's an entry-level career, in my opinion. You, you get there, it's awesome. You spend 10, 15 years there, your resume is boosted, and you go on to do something else that changes the world and makes it better. And that, that piece, too, um, leans me closer towards the yes, but I won't say a definitive answer because it's so layered. Well, I just want to weigh one little thing because Terrell like, provoked something in me, which is like, also you would never stay in the same job making, you know, unless maybe you're making just a ton of money and in, in the normal world either, just because you can only be in the Senate for 18 years, guess doesn't mean you can't run for Congress. Doesn't mean you can't try to be appointed as a secretary. Doesn't mean you can't try to like work in bureaucracy. It doesn't mean you can't try to, you know, like, we're not saying just work that and be done. You know, it's like you Absolutely. can still run for office if leadership is what drives you. If legislation is what drives you, then run for Congress run to be represented one other side of the legislature you know i'm just saying like we're not limiting people from like making it a long-term career if that's really what they believe in and are motivated to do and are called upon but being a lifetime senator having my thing with marky and i hate to bring him up again but was marky what has been in the senate long enough to have voted on segregationist bills and now is one of the most progressive members of it so yes growth can happen but if you were justified at the time to have made the vote about segregation and they're still running for office in a time 50 something years later. I don't know. Can I ask you guys, I know we're running out of time. I just wanna ask one final question because I do think that it just is in line with what we're discussing and it's thought provoking too. Absolutely. With the Senate, um, we see that like, even when we have overwhelming democratic support um, and we win big in the house and have a large majority like we did in 2018, we still see us fighting and gripping on tooth and nail to holding or getting any power in the Senate. And we live in a world where increasingly more people are moving into urban areas, less people are living in rural areas, these more, these more desolate, less, less populated states um, are maintaining larger amounts of power because of the, the population of their states. Um, like we're never going to go back out and win Wyoming, right? We're not going to win Wyoming. We're not going to win. It will be, you know, we, there's not out of the question, but I'm saying like a lot of those states, North Dakota, South Dakota, like those are not in, in play and they're not growing in population or necessarily even growing in diversity. These are places that are actually getting like less people are living there. You know, there's, there's more people in one neighborhood of Chicago than there is in South Dakota or North Dakota combined. And the electoral power that those two states have for senators to vote, you know, in contrast to the same amount of power being applied to a, a, a state such as Illinois, the populace of Illinois, what do we do about that? We are only going to continue to find ourselves where we are being ruled or all of our legislation is being held up by the minority. Um, and how are we going to get anything done when that continues to be the case? Where are we gonna just move people out to Wyoming? Make the Dakotas one. Oh. Why do we have two Dakotas? Come on. Split California before you make Dakota one. <laughs> what? Why are the, Why do we have two Dakotas? I mean, fair, but like the size. Chicago. Yeah. The, the geographical size of one Dakota is just so massive. Oh, like, because it, Texas is just... Okay, Texas is Texas shouldn't even... <laughs> Texas itself is its own cluster. But like, if you're going to do that, start splitting up some of these democratic states like make california two three states add your senators there but i'm not saying that's the appropriate answer dc a state puerto rico state pull go nuclear puerto rico i think, I think that's i for me personally i think the move is go nuclear uh 
we did it once and that's why we're in the current state that we're in ram through a supreme court bill that expands it i have and caleb will probably be shocked to hear me say this i don't personally support it but ram one through or forced to impeach one of the current sitting um uh, justices there's plenty of reason to remove them and then reestate the rule where you need to have a majority a super majority to approve them but we need to get back to what does it mean to have compromise? We need to get back to a space where um, we work together, but to get there, I do think there's going to have to be some aggressive things. And, and the people who are saying we can't expand the Supreme court, or we can't impeach a justice, or we can't not seat the Republicans who actively tried to overturn an election. I, I challenge them with a why. Uh, yeah. Why? Uh, look to your question, um, about disproportionate representation among rural areas versus urban areas and actual populations still getting two senators. I, I don't know if I have an answer to that. The one thing I struggle with is part of that whole system is so that rural places do get some kind of voice that maybe urban places wouldn't possibly have that same perspective of. And I respect that. I'm just, I'm not a hundred percent how you change it so we still have to, to it to some sense, listen to certain people that might not be at the table if we only had a system that allowed where the population center was having the power. Mm-hmm. But I so I don't know what the answer to that question is. But in terms of Democrats uh, having a hard time actually getting the Senate, uh, I think a lot of that's a Democratic messaging. <laughs> I think it's both. Yeah, I think it's both. Mathematically, we have like an uphill battle to to a majority. What I'm hearing from all of this is that we need to have a follow-up episode where we talk about everything that was just mentioned. I am in no way inviting myself to anything, but it would be really cool to have a segment with you guys to discuss some of these things. I think that we could have some really robust conversations. I was thinking it at the beginning, and um, I think we should do it. Um, I agree. Well, Torrance, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. We really enjoyed the script and talking to you today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was, I really enjoyed just discussing some of today's topics and sharing some of my work with you guys. Yeah, it was great getting catch up too and reminiscing on our Grand Valley days, but also um, I think your piece did such an amazing job to hit not only on where we are currently, but also where we are heading in the future. So thank you. Thank you. To all our viewers out there, check us out for one more episode at the end, somewhere at the end of the year before the new year begins, and it'll be like a year in review. Yeah, like Spotify wrapped kind of, but without the cool graphics. Exactly. Just our voices. Just our voices, if you aren't already tired of them. (laughs) Well, thanks for listening. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And we're dangerously likely to make a podcast. (laughs) 